0: There's nothing I enjoy more than teaching. I think this is the one aspect of ministry that has more blessings to me than just about any other, simply because if I'm studying the Word, if I'm studying these principles, it can't help. As hard-headed and stubborn as I am, it still can't help but affect me, and so I am happy to do it. Now, on the flip side, one of the most challenging ministries that I've had the opportunity to be a part of is the counseling ministry. Since I have been here, I've overseen the counselors who we have who do a lot of lay counseling. They're not pastoral staff, but they counsel people. And as a pastor, I do a lot of counseling. Some of it is what I would call happy counseling. When you're doing premarital counseling, everybody's smiling. Pretty much it's a, uh, (laughs) I'm going to be doing premarital counseling this afternoon. They're counting down the days to January. I mean, they're getting ready to be married, so that's happy counseling. It's not too hard I could tell them anything, and they would nod and smile and say, yeah, okay. (laughs) And that's just, and that's okay. I enjoy that. But there's other counseling, particularly that is very challenging, is when you have couples who are in crisis, and there's marriages in trouble. And in terms of the weighty things that we deal with, I don't know if anything troubles me more than counseling couples whose marriages are in trouble. Because I understand theologically how central marriage is to God's program. God ordained marriage, period. He did. And God's children can certainly be obedient without being married. There is a a freedom to minister. God doesn't require marriage. But we also understand that, as Scripture says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's good for there to be marriage. It's good for couples to have good marriages, but unfortunately, even in a church, there's a lot of marriages that come apart. I can't imagine the number of people Pastor Steve, going back to 1981 when he was installed as the senior pastor, I can't imagine the number of couples he's watched fall apart. People I know who he's done their premarital counseling and those things. And in my short time here, that's happened to me. I had It's a miserable experience to see somebody that I did their premarital counseling and I was confident They were going to have a good marriage, and they're already divorced. It's heart-wrenching. And there is a foundational aspect of Christian marriage that you have to be genuinely safe. People have to have a genuine commitment to Christ, because all of the other things in marriage aren't possible in a biblical sense without two born-again believers, which is why the Bible warns against being unequally yoked. We would never marry somebody who's knowingly marrying an unbeliever. That's against God's Word, and they're going to invite trouble. But in dealing with counseling, Pastor Steve and I were at some joint meetings that we are both on some boards on Thursday. Seems like every time we get together, we enjoy talking about a lot of things. But inevitably, at some point, we're talking about somebody who's hurting, a couple who's not doing well, people who have fallen off the track. And a couple of years ago, I pleaded with this class, come see me before the crisis. It's a lot easier Before the hand grenade exploded to try and get people to talk sensibly about what does God expect of you as husband and wife. I make that plea again even as I continue to see trials. We had a marriage conference um, about a year and a half ago in part because we saw so many marriages under attack here. Satan is running rampant trying to attack God's children. One of the ways he does it is by attacking marriages. So if you're sitting here this morning and you have a good marriage, you should praise the Lord It is only by his grace that you have that. And if you're sitting here this morning and you have troubles in your marriage, don't give up hope. There is hope. But all of this caused me to think about what I would talk about if I had a few moments. And there's an issue that I see over and over and over again. In fact, at our marriage conference, I taught on this in a much bigger and broader sense. But it has to do with how Christians talk to one another. How Christians communicate with one another. How Christians interact on a daily basis with one another. And so the things that I'm going to talk about this morning are really, it's a topical issue of Christ-centered communication. I think this has direct relevance to your marriage, if you're married. Even if you're married to an unbeliever, you should be implying these things. In fact, the Bible makes it clear if you're married to an unbeliever and they're willing to stay with you, you stay married And maybe, by God's grace, you'll be used to bring them to Christ. But this whole issue of communication keeps coming up because inevitably people fight and they have issues because they don't communicate well. I have altered how I do premarital counseling. I use a book that has certain chapters. It has a chapter on sexual unity. It has a chapter on financial unity. It has a chapter on the roles of husband and wives. It has a chapter on children. And what I have seen more and more and more times is generally financial issues aren't really financial issues. They're communications about finances that cause the problem. And sexual issues aren't really physical incompatibility, it's communication about sexual relationship. And on and on it goes, and so I see more and more how central proper communication is to how we live. If you still work, that's a significant issue. You interact on a daily basis with people in the workplace. If you have children, how you interact with them, how you communicate with them matters. If you are going to see family at Thanksgiving or at Christmas, either saved or unsaved, you're well aware there can be tensions within family. How you communicate can make a difference in how you respond with what's going on. And so in the time we have today, I want to talk about Christ-centered communication. And again, I have given this message in a broader format with a lot longer. I don't have time to talk about all those things, but I just want to talk about some general principles. And this is more of me. I'll point you to scriptures You can write down the scriptural references. This isn't me opening up a passage of scripture and teaching it through. I'm going to take this point, this point, this point. This is me partly sharing my heart, but partly sharing biblical truth, because I think everything I'm going to tell you is biblical. In fact, I don't think it. I can show you the scriptures, and you can decide whether it's biblical. I'm going to be pointing you to them. I would just encourage you to write them down. If you ever wanted to hear the longer version, if you went on our church website and looked For our marriage conference, I gave a message that was twice as long as I'll give you today. Had more content and things. But I'm going to try, I think, depending on how much time I have, to cover just three general principles to help you communicate in a Christ-centered way. And I will start with something that is so basic that once you write it down, you may think, well, what's the point of this? But this is a starting point. Christ-centered communication, first, it is designed to please God. It is designed to please God. The foundation for communicating in a Christ-centered way is the right type of relationship with Christ. If you've been a believer for 20 years, if you've been a believer for a month, if you've been a believer for 50 years... The reality is every moment of your life is supposed to be designed to please God. The reason you do anything in obedience, the reason you read your Bible so that you can learn what God wants you to do, the purpose behind all of it is to please God. Now, when I say please God, we understand I don't mean to earn salvation. We can't do anything to please God to earn our salvation. It's a gift from God. God's given it to us freely. Sinners like us have been redeemed by the blood of the cross but at the moment of salvation until the lord calls us home we are supposed to live lives that are pleasing to him and ultimately that includes even our speech again i'm going to give you a lot of scripture references we probably don't have time for you to turn to all of them but first thessalonians 2 3 and 4 first thessalonians 2 3 and 4 The Apostle Paul wasn't talking directly about marriage. He was talking about how he instructs, how he shares, how he talks to the church. But he said, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. When I talk to you about communication, and I see broken marriages in my office, and I see people struggling, and I see broken relationships, the ultimate point of good communication isn't for the other person. It's for God. Now, does it have effects on the other person? Of course it does. Does it have blessings? Of course it does. But the ultimate motivation has got to be pleasing God. Why is this important? For a thousand reasons, but one of them is everything I tell you to do doesn't guaranteed that it will be reciprocated understand you know you can communicate perfectly and your spouse can still choose not to you can communicate perfectly and your kids can still rebel against what you're saying you can communicate perfectly in a way intended to please god and yet your co-workers or your boss or anybody else can ignore you the christian life is not what name-it-and-claim-it type pastors would say, if you do this, this automatically happens. You could do all these things, and it could greatly bless you. But the reason you're doing it is because of God, not because of the effect on other people. The point isn't to make your wife happy, or to make your husband happy, or to make yourself happy. The primary goal should be to please God. God's examining your heart at every moment. You want to be pleasing to God, just like Christ was pleasing to God. I think often about how much audacity in a good sense Paul had to say, follow me as I follow Christ. You won't talk about a bullseye. Okay, everybody in here, just follow me. If you just follow everything I do, you'll be pleasing to God. That would terrify me to say that. And yet I should say it. The Apostle Paul was saying it. But he said, follow me as I follow Christ. And if you follow Christ, you'll always please God. John 8:29 Jesus said this John 8:29 And he who sent me is with me he has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him Matthew 3:16 and 17 a very familiar text Matthew 3:16 and 17 it's after Jesus was baptized Verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Every action Jesus ever took was pleasing to God. Every word that ever came out of his mouth was pleasing to God. Now... If I wanted to prove my point to you biblically that you can say all the right things and still suffer, Christ is our example. After his death, it looks like his family, some of them came to faith, but he was mocked by his own family at one point. Certainly the religious leaders of his day spearheaded the people to turn against him. Ultimately, though, what we have to do just as jesus did jesus came to do the will of the father in spite of what anybody else's reaction was he didn't come to do the will of the father so that other people would do this 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 he came to do the will of the father regardless i can't fully comprehend all of the anguish that jesus experienced on the earth what he experienced on the cross is incomprehensible But Jesus was aware of all the people that were not listening to him or rejecting him. Steve, you might have the reference off the top of your head, I can't recall it, where his heart was burdened for Jerusalem. I believe it's Luke 21. But in that neighborhood where Jesus just, he knew these people weren't responding. He knew they were not there and it burdened him. Now, again, our entire Christian lives are supposed to be this way. If you were here for the prayer service last Sunday evening, Jason went through Colossians 1, 9 through 14. It was a great time of prayer. But what you see, even in that prayer by the Apostle Paul for the church in Colossae, that you can apply to your lives, and I've taught that text more than once, the point of everything he's praying for is so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Now, It can be that God mercifully helps people respond well to what we're saying. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, that's not an absolute, but it does teach you a principle that in general, if you're walking with the Lord, there will be a positive effect on your life. But I can't stress enough that what I'm trying to convince you of from the Scripture is that God wants every word that comes out of our mouths to be pleasing to him. Period. It's a haunting statement where the picture of the judgment day that every careless word uttered is recorded. Every careless word God knows. Now praise the Lord for all of us in this room that if we know Christ, every foolish word that came off of our lips that was sinful was nailed to the cross. That sin is forgiven. But I would encourage you, as you think about talking to anybody, think in terms of whether what you're going to say is pleasing to God, particularly if you have an axe to grind, particularly if you're frustrated, particularly if you want to correct somebody. You want to make sure that what you're going to say and how you're going to say it is going to be pleasing to God. The ultimate issue isn't changing someone else. The ultimate issue isn't, well, if I say it the right way, I can manipulate or turn them. No, the ultimate issue is that you have a heart pure before the Lord who examines your heart so that when you communicate, it's intended to please Him. Galatians five twenty two and 23 is just the fruit of the Spirit. Everything I'm saying about Christ-centered communication is dependent upon you being possessed of the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Just stop right there. You just apply that, guess what? You'll never have problems. You wouldn't. If you lived that way and those characteristics guarded your tongue... You'd just have the happiest marriage you could ever imagine. You'd have the best relationships with people you could ever imagine. I'm saying that in the context of two believers equally applying that in their household. But I would encourage you, contemplate how you speak. If you talk a lot like I do, there's a great likelihood you will get yourself in trouble. I can't quote it from, I get the versions wrong because I memorized this as a young lawyer who talked all the time in, I think, the NIV. But there's a proverb where words are many, sin is not absent. I literally, I carried a card around in my pocket for years, a little three by five, that I'd written that down as a lawyer because guess what? There's nothing for a lawyer if there's not words. And I knew that my life indicated I was great danger of sinning a lot all the time but he who holds his tongue is wise, is the second part. It may be that you have to learn how to restrain talking. But I would encourage you as you think about what you say, As you, as you well, I would encourage you to think about what you say, that will be my second point. But I want you to reflect on whether the day-to-day discourse that you carry on in life is pleasing to God. Now, if you speak rudely or profanely, or vilely, you got a whole other set of issues. Ephesians five one to four make it clear that our behavior is to be constrained by Christ. Ephesians five one to four says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Verse 4, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Let me encourage you as you think through the interactions you're about to have with family over the holidays, many of them unsaved, or family that you love, or if you're struggling with your spouse, or if your spouse is struggling with you, whatever the case, focus on transforming your mindset so that you are thinking consciously about your communication being designed to please God. So the first characteristic of Christ-centered communication is it is designed to please God. The second is this, it is preceded by thought. I almost got ahead of myself, but it is preceded by thought. Stated in perhaps a more simple way. Sometimes when I'm writing, I don't get carried away when you're trying to make all your points look a certain way. Um, Think before you talk. Think before you talk. I know that people don't always think before they talk, number one, because I do that all the time. Number two, because I've heard people say things in my office that it almost made me smile because I'm like, I can't believe you just said that. (laughs) I bet you can't believe you just said that sitting there – And sadly, people do that with their spouses all the time and with their childrens. But throughout Scripture, we see a consistent broader principle is that rash action, which includes rash speaking, things that are done without thinking ultimately lead to sin and problems. Proverbs 10.19, by the way, is the quote I gave you before. Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. That's the verse I was talking about, Proverbs ten nineteen. But understand, the more you talk, greater likelihood of sin. The more you talk without thinking, the less likelihood you'll be trying to please God with your words. Now, how do you guard yourself so that you can condition yourself to start slowing down and thinking before you speak? Some of it is just being reminded of what the Scripture says and trying to live out Scripture. For example, Proverbs 15.28. Proverbs 15.28 says this, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. That's a noble thing. I want to be righteous. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. What's the plan B? As Proverbs often do, they'll put a good and a bad but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things, this idea of just gushing out. As God's children, we don't want to be equated with the wicked, pouring out evil things. We want to be with the righteous and ponder how to answer. James said something very similar this way in James 1.19. Again, another verse that I memorized as a new believer because of how applicable it was. This you know, my beloved brethren, that everyone must be quick to hear, meaning a desire to listen more than a desire to talk, slow to speak and slow to anger. Sinful words generally are a reflection of an unrestrained heart. The absence of self-control as a fruit of the Spirit often manifests itself in a gushing forth of foolishness that can be devastating to those who are around us. And just in case you don't have the same runneth over at the mouth disease as I do, understand you can communicate all these same negative things with just your body language. The way you roll your eyes, the way you kind of scoff, the way you ignore people. You can be, You can be completely silent with your words and still communicate to everybody how annoyed and angry and frustrated you are. So, the restraint I'm talking about, this thinking before you communicate, also includes your body reactions and your body language and your facial expressions. It's all tied to this concept of self control. If we are children of God, we have the ability to control ourselves regardless of how many years of bad habits we have to overcome. You can change. In fact, if you will work on learning how to communicate differently, if you can learn to control your tongue, if you can learn to think before you speak and only say things designed to please the Lord, can I tell you all the other areas of your sanctification will come together? I'll say this, and I say that from James 3 two. James says this, for we all stumble in many ways. could preach a sermon on that and every one of us could go up and give testimony for hours. How many ways do we sin? How many ways do we trip over ourselves? How many times do we repeat patterns of behavior that we just are kicking ourselves for? But then it goes on to say, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. The picture ultimately being painted there is if you have the ability to exercise control over your tongue, it means you've learned to control your heart, which means all the other areas of sanctification will be a lot easier. I think it goes without saying if you don't think before you speak, you can hurt your spouse. If you don't think before you speak, you can crush your children. If you don't think before you speak, you can create such an unpleasant atmosphere that people will turn the other way to get away from you. And if that's an issue, it's not really just an issue of the mouth, it's an issue of the heart. Matthew twelve thirty four and 36 has some key teaching by Jesus. But he says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. I think about that a lot whenever my mouth says stupid things. Because it tells me at that moment my heart isn't where it needs to be with the Lord. When I first started studying about talking, I found that there are countless proverbs on the issue. But one of the reasons the book of James had such a transformative impact on my life, it was the first book I heard taught through when I came to faith. It's the first book that I went through. Sunday school teacher was teaching through it, and Sunday after Sunday, I'm seeing all the stuff that I didn't even know was in the book. But in James 3, 5, and 6, it talks about the potential damage the tongue can do. And I would say just in the context of how I'm framing this, if you have a habit of speaking without thinking, it means likely you have a habit of speaking without trying to please God. And it ultimately means you can cause destruction. James 3, five says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members, is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The ultimate point of that is just how destructive the tongue can be. And you put all scripture together, the reason the tongue is so destructive is because the heart that's motivating that tongue is not bent on pleasing the Lord. So we need to learn to slow down to control our passions, to resist the temptation to just blurt out the first thing that comes into our mind. Certainly, if you struggle with anger, you've got to get that under control because that's the deed of the flesh, that's not a fruit of the spirit. Proverbs 16:32 Proverbs 16:32 says this, "He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city." Once again that principle, if you can learn to control your heart and your anger, that's a powerful thing the Lord has given you. If you can do that, you'll speak more appropriately. Colossians 4.6, I'll just read a couple of verses that are talking about speech. Colossians 4.6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Proverbs 25.11, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. If you have any marital issues, if you've ever talked to me about anything relating to life, I'd go to Proverbs fifteen one all the time. Proverbs fifteen one, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. you want to communicate as a wise person who knows the Lord rather than a foolish person. If you have a problem with speaking before you've even heard what people are saying to you, they're talking and you're already coming up with your response, it's not a virtue. Proverbs 18:13. He who gives an answer before he hears... It is folly and shame to him. I don't care if you've been married to your wife twenty or thirty or forty or fifty years, and you think you always know what they're saying. And quite often you will. Listen. Don't just assume and fire off an answer before you've even heard. Proverbs seventeen twenty seven. He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Ultimately, it's a matter of do you choose a wise path or a foolish path proverbs twenty nine twenty will be the last verse I give you on this. And just think about this of applying it to yourself. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? Stop right there. It could be a man. It could be a woman. Hasty in his words, meaning they blurt out the first thing there. Says there is more hope for a fool than for him. We don't want to be there. So I would encourage you, think before you speak. So I'll have time. I'm going to do one more quickly characteristics of Christ-centered communication. First, it's designed to please God. Second, it's preceded by thought. Third, it is motivated by love. It is motivated by love. In fact, you can see very quickly with just a simple understanding, connecting of the dots, how critical, number one and number three, they feed off each other. Because if you're motivated by love for God, you're going to be desiring to please God. If you're motivated... By pleasing God, your words are going to be motivated by love. Love is a paramount Christian virtue and duty. I don't think it's too much of a stretch. Uh, love You could say love is one of the most significant validations of whether you're truly saved, of whether someone's been born again. The commands Jesus gives to love are very clear. I'll just, I'm just going to give you some verses john thirteen thirty four to thirty five john 1 john three twenty three actually telling you what jesus had commanded first john four seven and eight beloved, let us love one another for love is from god. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. I could go all over the scriptures and over and over point out those same truths. I highlight those verses because I don't ever want you to think I'm talking just out of some abstract thinking on my own because what I think doesn't really matter. Any more than what you think matters. What matters is what does God say, and what God says is that love should be a motivating factor of our heart. And ultimately this all ties in to how we communicate. We have to have hearts of love motivated by love that cause us to want to talk differently. One of the saddest things that happens with people is when they settle into a routine and says, I'll accept this much sin in my life. You know what? I I used to be this bad. I've gotten this far. That's enough for me. It happens all the time. In fact, we probably have all been guilty of it at times. But when it comes to the Word of God, it makes it clear our duty is never to tolerate any iniquity in our lives. Our goal is to be like Christ, and that includes our communication, and the only way we'll be like Christ is if we love like Christ. I always think it's fascinating that Jesus said our love for others, particularly for other Christians, is evangelistic. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's profound. And if I can bring it back to the marital relationship, your kids, your grandkids, your extended family are going to know whether you have love for God by whether you have love for your spouse. And it's one thing to say I really love someone and then treat them like garbage week in and week out. We have a lot of words for that. We call it hypocrisy. We call it wickedness. For some people, we call it deceptive unbelief. Ephesians 5:33. Then Ephesians 5, three different times, husbands love your wives. Husbands love your wives. Husbands love your wives. Again, you want to know whether you're motivated by love? I would encourage you, go to Galatians chapter 5. And there's a whole list of the deeds of the flesh. Beginning at verse nineteen through verse twenty one. Here are some of those deeds of the flesh immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings. It goes on to more. Those things show up in our words so much it's incomprehensible. So if you look at your speech and it's motivated by anger, frustrations, impatience, all those types of things, you know that's not loving speech. How do you act in love? By being filled with the Spirit of God. And how do you live in such a way that you're controlled by the Spirit of God? It's not a mystical experience. It's not us all gathering around and praying for you for five hours with a worship song playing to work you into a frenzy. There's not a shortcut, it's through God's Word. Period. If you're saved, God gave you His Spirit who indwells you at the moment of your salvation, you have to spend time in God's Word. I've said it before, but I've said it recently. Pastor Steve emphasized this so much, and the longer I live, the more I realize how accurate He is. You have to spend time daily in God's Word. And I know there have been many seasons in my life when I didn't. In addition to spending time with God's Word, you've got to spend time with God's people. If you surround yourself all the time with unbelievers and you never gather together with believers, you have problems. I'm not in any way suggesting you cut off relationships with people that you're trying to evangelize or witness to. That's a a worthy thing. Jesus dined with sinners. But it's possible, even in the church, for people to have more fun with unbelievers and want to be around unbelievers all the time as opposed to being around God's people. Don't think that doesn't wear off. Spend time in the Word. Spend time with God's people. Spend time praying for one another. Don't be overly influenced by worldly desires and things. Speaking differently doesn't occur overnight. It is a long process. However, it is a necessary process because what you say reflects your heart. Period. It's not my thinking. That's Jesus' words. And I'm inevitably, somebody will say, well, I I agree with everything you say, but you don't know my circumstances. You you don't understand what I'm going through. Yeah, I agree with you in the abstract, in your fairy tale world, but you don't have my spouse, or you don't have my kids, or you don't have my job. These people disrespect me, and they're rude and abusive to me, and if I don't respond in kind, they're going to run over me. As a passage, I've come to go to. In fact, I may teach through this book. The next book I teach in about twelve years when I finish Hebrews. <laughs> but First Peter, I have started going to more and more. So turn in your Bibles. Just, let's turn there, and I'll, I'll I'll close with this text. And this is a loving exhortation to people. But 1 Peter 3 has some strong exhortations. We're going to be in 1 Peter 2. But I'm telling you what I'm doing here. 1 Peter 3 has some strong exhortations to wives. In fact, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 3 because I'm going to go backwards because I'm going to answer this question about, but you don't know my circumstances. You don't know who I have to deal with. You don't understand the troubles I have with my unique circumstances. Now... As a side note, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. You're not unique. But that's a whole other story and a whole other message. In 1 Peter 3, 1, it says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. That is a powerful message to anyone who has a horrible husband there's hope and even in that context god says do it anyway if you have a good husband you praise the lord for that but if you don't everything i'm telling you about how you speak you can still do you go down to verse seven and says you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I don't know how many husbands I've dealt with that don't honor their wives. And they're puzzled why they feel distant from God. It says right there, if you don't honor and live with your wife in honor, if you don't treat her with the respect, simply because God called you to, your prayers aren't even going to be heard well. But here's what I wanted you to see. It says, in the same way you wives... In the same way you husbands, what is he talking about? He's talking about the example of Christ. So look back up to verse nineteen of chapter two of first Peter. And if you think that everything Joe said this morning, yeah, I can see that it's biblical, but it, it it's my situation is so hard. He says this. Let me go to verse 19, for this finds favor for the sake of conscience. Toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you are sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Verse 21 For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And this is where I want to focus. This is the last thing I'm going to say. People are at the doors. Verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. How did Jesus, when he was being abused and slandered and tormented and mocked, how did he avoid responding in an ungodly way. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. God loves his children. If you're worried about being run over, if you're worried about people taking advantage of you, you entrust yourself to God. The sovereign ruler of the universe, he will help you. Let me close this with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us in our communication. Lord, help us to be pleasing to you. We love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.